So uh, I want to welcome everyone. Wonderful to see you. So uh, I want to continue the theme uh, that we have been uh, listening to in this series, uh, the theme of the continua of our spiritual journey, <clears throat> looking at it from different ways that we change, different aspects of, of ourselves that uh, evolve along in the path. Oftentimes we catch a familiar glimpse within one of these continuum or perhaps within all. Uh, we sense, oh yeah, I am becoming a little less uh, reactive or a little more open-hearted or whatever the theme might be. <clears throat> and it just shows us that we're moving in a wise direction. And it's important to know that and it's important to get a sense that there has been or will be uh, some movement in us, some shift of consciousness, some shift in, in the way we perceive or the way we are, or the way we look, the way we understand the life. And uh, I would like to just to recommend a, a PBS series called The Brain. Uh, I've been watching it, uh, filming it, and uh, then watching it to the series. And I don't know how many uh, shows are in the series, but I just saw the third. But it's, uh, it's by David Eagleman, who is a psychiatrist and neuroscientist. And he maps out the brain and, and shows, asks questions about the brain from a neurological perspective, like who I am, or like, is the reality I see the, actually true? Uh, and the last one was on uh, who, do, do we really have the capacity to decide, to make decisions, to act from free will? We believe we do. But he shows neurologically, not dharmically, but those two uh, are very in line with one another, I think you'll appreciate. And, uh, but uh, this last one about the decision making, he, just, he shows that uh, the neurological culture the cells, the neurons, some uh, billion of them, and their trillion pathways that touch each of the neurons, uh, forming uh, the conditioned uh, in, uh, propensities to act and to be in a certain way. And uh, where we are within all of that is the superficial conversation that goes on after the fact. We acknowledge what, we what the conditioning just did, basically, I think is what he says. And I would like to just start with that theme of, of the, we're ego grand central station. The, where the ego uh, uh, sits is within the voice, uh, the voice of our, our heads. And uh, how much we consider that voice in our heads to be sort of the the local, the, the location of, of our main operating system. It's what we operate upon. It's what we indulge within. It's where we contemplate and, and uh, swirl within our tumultuous, often complicated thinking patterns. And then we make a decision or not, but it's always trying to keep that voice in our heads very much alive and active. So that's ego central. And 
it's important to all see how much we feed that because, of course, the movement of Dharma is, is a movement outside of that central programming, out of that conditioned response, which thoughts are just merely a conditioned response from all of the mental activity in the neurons. That's the outlet. That's what the summation of it is. And the other, the other thing is that uh, he mentions is that it doesn't really matter what input comes in. What matters to the brain is organizing it so that it makes sense. The reality that whatever it sees, it makes sense. And if it doesn't make sense, it manufactures sense from what it is that comes in. But above all else, the brain is there to make sense of the world. And so it's a conditioned making sense that what we see and we perceive. And it's a, it's a very interesting uh, questioning that we can, we can involve ourselves in. You know, what, so, so what is, the, what is this? You know, what, what's, what's actually going on here? So I wanted to talk briefly about three ways we strengthen that voice, that egocentral voice, uh, without really knowing it in our Dharma practice and how that uh, holds a kind of fascination because uh, the thoughts that we have swirling in our minds hold such a central place within our self-description and within our descriptions of the world. And so I just want to uh, just look at how dharmically we fold in to that uh, central characteristic of the voice in our head as being the explanation and the product of much of our dharma practice. And the first thing, the first uh, way that we strengthen that voice without knowing it is that uh, uh, we uh, don't understand what we're doing and why. Now, when we don't understand exactly what we're doing in dharma, then you can be sure that what we're acting from is the conditioned response of what we've always done. And I know that many of you over the course of your uh, Dharma lives have heard the Dharma over and over again and oftentimes it sinks in a little bit differently and a little bit from a different perspective and a little deeper than it did when you first heard it. And that's the shift of understanding that's occurring within each one of us as our own practice begins to integrate those experiences that we have talked about and you have thought about into the actual fabric of our cells of our body. Now, the problem is that most of us don't act from that understanding. We acknowledge it, <clears throat> but our actions don't bear consistency with that understanding. And we will do what's expedient or comfortable. And so we operate much more from a sense of our background and past conditioning than we do from the understanding that uh, each of us is in the process of integrating. Now, uh, that's going to backfire at some point, obviously. But one of the antidotes to being able to move forward uh, from this new understanding is by questioning, by looking at our lives and questioning different facets of our life. 
and bringing the Dharma understanding within those questions. If you know that things change and you seem very fixed in your own position, you might question that fixation in relationship to the understanding that's, that's um, dawning on you about the nature of the transitional quality of life, of the, of the uh, transitory quality and nature of life. Why am I so fixed in my opinions when I know that that's just a momentary judgment on a situation that I'm carrying forward? And that begins to break up some of the calcification of our minds that, that, uh, of that conditioning process. And one of the things that this brain series has left me feeling is how, you know, this is, this is not minor, this is major, this really requires all of our energy. If we drift, we drift back into the sphere of the conditioned influence of the billion ner- neurons who are after uh, only one objective, and that's to make sense of reality. And so if I slip back into my history, the reality that I perceive is going to make sense in relationship to that history. If I stay on top of myself and truly know that that history is coming forth in the present, I can free that present moment up from the historical bound shrouding that's covering it. Otherwise, it's just all—it's just everything we do is just reinforces what we've already done in our life. And it really brought that to bear in a very uh, scientific way, which I appreciate. So that's one of the three ways I. Uh, that we um, fall back into a kind of benign assistance uh, to our conditioning uh, that we just we don't uh, we don't understand what we're doing and why 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 are we following the breath what is the point of that well it's to make our mind say but what does that have to do with freedom what does that have to do with a wider understanding or making or allowing ourselves to become more conscious. These are questions that all of us have to work through or we're just doing what's expedient, what the teacher told us to do. And that's just a conditioned influence like every other. We have to bring these questions to bear upon our own practice, to open this practice up so that we begin to understand the direction it points and everything that is involved within that particular perspective and pointing. Now the second, uh, I could go on, I mean this could be a whole talk in and of itself, but (laughs) I have other points. (laughs) And uh, the second point is uh, moving forward uh, free from that conditioning. So how do I move forward using the, why is it that when I move forward in my practice, that there are certain conditioned ways that I settle very comfortably within that practice and don't really... Uh, question. So it's a, it's a, it's a slight um, shift from the first question, but it's one in which I want to identify certain patterns of conditioning that are in us that we leave almost dormant. We allow to be dormant, or what we think is dormant, but are actually creating our practice from its dormancy. And we don't realize how actively expressive these conditioned tendencies are. So I just have a few of them I want to talk about. One is uh, that our identity has come from what others have told us. 
And uh, so, so often our early childhood imprints are what we have carried with us to create our own sense of identity. And we are loath to really question that identity or to question the assumptions from which the, that identity is based or the people who gave us those inscriptions early on in our life. And so that identity carries forth and we assume it even within the posture of our spiritual journey. Uh, we don't want to question uh, some fundamental part of our belief system about ourselves, our self-beliefs. We don't want to really look at some of the uncomfortable issues. We'd rather just kind of gloss over them and put our attention on their breath and, and in a, some kind of parallel way, let that conditioning be latent while we move forward and plow forward within our samadhi-driven experience, thinking that uh, we can bypass some of the neurosis that we have lived with our whole life. Well, guess what? We can't. And to take this, this conditioning, this, these self-beliefs on, is an essential part of the spiritual journey. Another one is the, the, the culture acknowledging, understanding that the culture has trained us to want, to desire, and especially this culture that is driven by uh, the market economy. It depends upon our wanting, our greed, for it to move forward, for it to have a 5% growth rate or a 3% growth rate or whatever else. So it has to instill a kind of wanting in us. Do we know that wanting? Do we, can we feel what the culture is inscribing within our consciousness? Can we feel the tendencies within us uh, to want certain things and to compete with others uh, for more material goods, for a better this or that? It, or is there some, uh, is there some uh, discernment there where we are willing to drive an old car rather than buy the newest thing on the block? Or are we looking at it from a, from a broader point of view than the driven market economy wants us? And this is also true when we sit. We are, you know, the, the, the personal needs, the personal pains that we all live with and the need to try to, to, to grow outside of those through competition, through a force of will, through all, all of that is culturally induced within us. Do we even realize that that's going on in us? Do we even realize that we that we have a, a, a kind of preset format for how we handle any kind of problem that arises or any sort of objective or goal that we, we set for ourselves, that this is all programmed as a part of our conditioning. We need to know that. Another uh, point about our conditioning that needs to be known is um, how much, how dependent we are on, on comfort for our happiness. This is uh, very deeply ingrained in us, especially we carry it right along again with us in our spiritual journey, seeking out more comfortable states of mind from ones that are less comfortable, seeking out comfortable postures or places or environments, uh, but always with that uh, intention to be comfortable rather than to really be challenged. And again, once we move in that direction, we're no better really than a single cell amoeba that moves towards a warm water as opposed to cold water or whatever a single cell bacteria does.
And that same conditioning, that same conditioning drives us, it moves us to become aware of that, to, begin, to acknowledge that fact. And now here's one that, uh, and this next point is, uh, is one that I think is extremely important, but often missed, and that the world that we perceive and that we think about isn't, is also induced because it makes sense. It makes sense to our mental map. It makes sense to our, the voice in our head. But it doesn't, it isn't what it seems to be. This world, what we perceive the world to be, this is only what it seems to be. It's not in fact what it is. But we can move our practice, our spiritual practice, right along within the themes of this seeming to be world. And much of our strategies, much of our will, much of our intentionality comes from the assumptions we make about this, the appearances within this world. And one of the major appearances that I've talked about many times is the appearance of separation. And when I feel like I'm having a problem because I'm focused on the voice in my head, as being the central issue of me, and that that voice in their head is different than the heads I see that don't have that voice, I then can proclaim myself to be separate from you. And when I have a problem, this voice in its head has a whole set, a whole outline, a whole map for how it gets over this problem, how it forces itself around this problem or through this problem willfully, and that's how we navigate the world, through the seeming perceptions that we have of it. And we never question that. We don't look at it and we don't say, wait a minute here. See, until we do, how can our, how can our meditation practice grow and flourish when it's being held within what makes sense up here in the, to the voices in our head? If it makes sense up here to the voices of our head, you can be sure that it's going to stay within that realm, going to stay mentally framed. But that's not the spiritual. The spiritual is to grow outside of that mental frame of reference. It's to grow beyond it. So we can't listen to the conditioned influences in order to grow beyond something. We can't embellish. We can't use that as our guideline, as our pointer, as our lead because all we do is stay within that noise is our frame of reference. So this is extraordinarily important to start taking that on and looking at it and, and questioning those voices, you see. And you get a sense of where questioning fits in to the landscape of, of, of this evolution. Because it's when you question something, suddenly you don't know the answer. That's key. Now when you don't know the answer, there's quiet. This thing isn't giving you the answer, hopefully. You're looking and seeing for yourself what is the answer. Rather than using this as the guide for the answer, you're losing your discerning awareness to see what's really there as opposed to what you think is there. And that's very subtle difference. And yet it makes all the difference as to the direction that unfolds. And final, final point I want to make on this particular uh, 
way we strengthen the voice of our of our conditioning is is in uh, see me endless way we project ourselves onto others how we hold the world responsible for our inward life how we project emotions onto the world because we don't like those emotions within ourselves characters qualities how we are constantly that's what a judgment is that's what prejudice is all of this seeming way that we remove the obligation and burden of having to see it for ourselves and place it on others and then respond to others in some kind of judgmental way so that we don't have to really deal with a problem ourselves. And the, these uh, two, four, five, five areas are at the heart of how conditioning molds and keeps us bound within ourselves. And if we do, this is the way the world will look. It will look this way from now on. And it, you, you, just, you have to do a little, you know, maybe rubbing of the eyes here to get a dear, deeper and clearer vision of what's going forward. Now the third uh, way that we strengthen this uh, voice in our head uh, is uh, how we, our worldly objectives uh, differ from our Dharma intentions. Of course, when you have the world telling you uh, what you need and you believing that internally as your own private decision of what I need, then you're going to have some conflict with the spiritual direction you're, you're headed in. And you have to, we have to start moving those uh, so that they're in parallel or aligned with each other. Now, I believe that's why the Buddha talked so well about wise livelihood, because he was trying to encourage our life as we live it into a single way of movement forward, rather than to have one in conflict with the other, rather than to have your work life which is eight hours of most people's days in conflict with the stated intention of your spiritual life and then somehow at night being able to settle within your meditation or within your spiritual life as if that other eight hours didn't matter. You have to use those eight hours to reinforce the direction and intentionality that you want your life to take. But in a broader sense, we are constantly placing on the back burner what our hearts genuinely yearn for. We don't really want our life to be dharmically led. We want to lead it through the comfort and through the desires that the culture has induced within us. And then secondarily, if there's any time left over, give it over to a little bit of love and kindness. So this really has to be, we, this has to be shored up. We have to start aligning our lives along with our spiritual intentions. And it can be done, you just have to, you just have to decide that that's what you want. Really, basically, that's, you have to decide what you really want out of life and then move it in that direction. And hopefully what you want from your life 
is your spiritual intention. Okay, so now I'm going to bring in the theme of the evening, which is the movement from sophistication, sophistication to innocence. That's the continuum that we're looking at. And sophistication is really what I've been speaking about, the embodiment of the knowledge, the embodiment of the learned history within us in a confident and insured manner. You know, that's a sophistication. The sophistication, you know what life's about, you know where you're going, you know all of that kind of, of, of uh, confidence and steadiness, false steadiness, but we believe it to be um, uh, a, a rewarded uh, confidence and one that shows something uh, positive about the person. And we're comfortable within our knowledge base. And, and innocence, on the other side of this, is really seen as kind of um, confusing, guileless. You know, the person who's innocent is really a, an object of ridicule. Uh, nobody wants to be innocent. Everybody wants to be sophisticated. And yet the Dharma movement is from sophistication to innocence. From this voice-led life, mentally voice-led life, to a life of what? What is innocence, you see? It's not knowledge-based. It's looking at things tenderly. It's looking at things anew, fresh. That doesn't somehow... You think, oh no, I want to stay on the sophisticated side. Well, you can see then you keep nudging yourself in that direction. You, this continuum can never be crossed. That's one of the objectives, one of the intentions, is that you have to free yourself up from this need to uh, identify which the culturally induced identification, which is to know a lot, right? So one of the ways we do that, we can't just decide we're going to do that. You have to show yourself that knowing a lot doesn't, that works against a very important principle for you. So I'm going to show you how knowing a lot works against being present. I ho hope that being present is important to you. If it's not, well, that's what we're doing. <laughs> I mean, I don't know why you come. And knowing a lot, being sophisticated, is going to keep you from being present. Now, how does that work? Okay, so when life's lessons come in, the experience, life's learned lessons and responses, you know, they, they uh, accumulate within the multiple array of neurological responses. Many of them hold the memories of what we have done and how we have responded. And so, but we also know from our Dharma practice that nothing is fixed. Everything is in transi transition. So here's the question I would hold for you, I would ask you to ponder. If what you have learned, the response that you have at one point seemed perfect for the moment at hand, you responded to, right? And that became a fixed way that you were looking at that particular problem. You were going to respond in that way. And yet life is not fixed. How is a fixed response going to ever meet a fluid experience? It's not. 
It's always going to be miss the point a little. It's always going to be just off-center. So knowledge, what I have learned, how I've learned to respond, what I've learned to do in situations like this, which at one point might have been accurate for that moment, after that moment, because life molds and moves in different variations and an infinite number of variations, isn't going to be the exact thing I need to do the next time that situation occurs. But I find myself being habitual in my response when that occurs. Easy, because it's easy. You know, even in hospice care, when I was in hospice work, even in hospice care, you can habituate responses. So after, you know, a few years working with patients, I would go into the house and I'd seen it all. And the person would start telling me the story and in my mind I would go, okay, I know exactly what to say to this person. And I would say that to them and they would like go, this guy's not listening to me at all. And they're absolutely right, I wasn't. Because what they wanted from me was the listening, not the response. See, so we think the response, because at one point giving that response was a, an accompanying part of the listening. When it first was offered, when I first offered whatever response that was, I was actually listening to the person. And it came spontaneously out of me and met that problem, probably in a, the correct orientation to that problem. And they also felt validated through my listening. But later when I'm just, okay, same problem, here's the answer, right? It doesn't carry, it doesn't carry the listening with it. It doesn't carry the connection with it. And now it's just, it's useless. It's a useless response. Basically, it's telling the person, this person doesn't care. Hmm? You see, we lose it. Within the conditioned response, caring is not, caring is not one of the relevant points. It doesn't really care whether it cares. Neurological firings, it they don't really have a sense of carrying in them. They just, they're mechanical. They're just firing. And here's the, there's the product of all that firing. Right? Caring comes from something else. Caring comes from the ability to be present actively, immediately. Not from the ability to be mechanical. Mechanical isn't, isn't being present. So you begin to get a sense that the knowledge we carry, this is the summation of what I want to talk about, the knowledge we carry isn't going to be, it isn't going to meet the needs, it met, even though at one point it met the needs, if you carry that over to a habitual response, it never again will meet the needs exactly. It's off. It's an inappropriate response. What is an appropriate response is to be present and listen. And let the response, right, come from that spontaneous quality of listening. So here's the, th here's, the, here's the tension. The more present we are, the less knowledge we carry. Okay, remember what the point of this mind is. It's to make sense out of everything. And therefore, the more present we are, the less sense the moment has because it doesn't carry a lot of knowledge with it. You see? In other words, we suspend the neurological habits, the conditioning, 
through our ability to attend. We're not attending to what the mind is saying. We're attending to the connection, to the presence of the moment. But the downside of that is that it doesn't feel safe. It feels confusing. It feels naive. We even belittle it. It feels innocent. It doesn't feel sophisticated. It doesn't feel like a CEO. Right? It just feels human, that's all. But who cares about that when I can be much more than that? I can be what my mind, I can make sense of life. I can establish that neurological habit of mine. Right? And the more present I become, the less sophisticated I become the less the world makes sense, the less thought-driven the world is, the less I'm attuned to the voice in my head. But, wait a second now. I'm a cultural person. I have a job, I have a family, I have friends, I have an identity. This is going right in and kind of poking me in those areas. I'm not sure I want to give up what people honor in me for some spiritual growth that I'm not even so excited about. So you can see what the forces that line up against us are huge, are tremendous. We don't know whether this is the right way we want to go on this. You know, this is, seems a little woo-woo-y. Okay, this, all of us have to meet these forces you see, this is, it's not smooth sailing. It requires something very deep in, of, in us to want to be nurtured forward. You see, and, this, and that's why most of us take one step forward, two steps back and rest a long time. Or we think we will just program this sense of innocence. Yeah, I'll be innocent. And we'll just kind of get on the boat of innocence, you're right? But everything else is completely conditioned within us. All the details and comforts and, you know, just make sure that the food is real, you know, and that it's warm and that, you know, all that. Okay, I'll get on that boat called the spiritual journey. But it's got to have it all be lined up for me. And I have to have my reputation. And I have to have other people in the boat really appreciate me. And I have to be knowledgeable. And it has to make sense. And I have to feel secure. And I don't want to feel threatened. You see? This is it. This is what starts being eroding us. This is like, oh, I don't know how much do I want this, you see? Now suddenly my spiritual intentions get undermined by my worldly ambitions. I thought I really had it straight. Right? It's like that. Right? And then suddenly uh, I've lost... I've lost my courage. I've lost my courage. I don't want to be guileless. I don't want to be confused. And then we we come into. I know, first of all, let, let me just say, there's value to history. I'm not suggesting, nor will I ever suggest. What I'm going to talk about, if I have time, <laughs> is the balance between living the history 
living the history in the present so that the history informs our world but doesn't dictate the world, doesn't set us on course for that only response so that we can listen and also know, right? Knowing is encompassed within the listening. How is that possible? Well, most of you have had the experience, or many of you have had the experience in your meditation of knowing at the moment it's happening that thoughts are occurring. And so you're here in the present with the conditioning firing its voice. And yet there's something bigger than the voice. Now, if there's something bigger than the voice, that means that there's something that's free of the voice and no longer dictated by the voice. To know that each of us have that capacity assures us that there's a freedom from this conditioning. Okay, so now that I've got that, now I have to have a different orientation to the voice in my head rather than just play it out. Is there a way that I can acknowledge what is occurring, the thoughts I'm having, the reactions I'm feeling, without projecting them outward? That means a total accountability because if we're not accountable, that means we're following the voice in our head. The voice that says, I don't like this thing in me. So it's to be completely total with the voice, but not a slave to it. That's just knowing that that possibility exists realigns our intention to conditioning. Now, I don't have to whittle away every fabric of conditioning. All the things that the culture has done to me, I now have to look at my need for comfort. Now I have to look at how much of my desires are instilled by advertisement. Now I have to look at what people told me when I was young. About you know, All you have to do is know that there's a voice in your head. That covers it all. Right? All the conditioning comes through that. It comes through the voice in our heads. And so, okay, so now I've got a question of whether I want to be quiet or not. And again, that f sets me up for self-judgment because quiet people aren't the most honored people in this culture any more than an innocent person was. They're not relished. You know, they're not, you just don't find a lot of people appreciating innocence. Dharma people. And so we are asked now we have come to the false nirvana. The false nirvana of this continuum is the feeling that, uh, you know, do I want to give up my years of sophistication? This is pretty good. People like me. I relish the power of my identity. I relish having people come to me to know and I can respond to them in some kind of wise way. So I'm not sure I want to give that position up. 
not sure that this isn't where I want to be. And each of us will be confronted by that, especially as our wisdom accumulates so that we actually do have something to say. It's not the fact that we proclaim that we don't have something to say when we do. It's the the identification with that image of having something to say to everyone. That's the point. That's the false nirvana. And it gets harder the more you practice because people will sense in you the wisdom, the understanding that is being realized. And they'll come to you because they're hungry. And that position of teacherness or sharing the Dharma becomes its own burden. Becomes its own burden. And then you're, you're, you're like a, you're like a target, your target practice for people because proje- everything comes that way. Okay, so then there's the counter-influence. <clears throat> When you realize that to move forward, innocence is the direction you move within. You got, there's just no substitute for it. And so being innocent, what does that mean? I don't even know what it means. What does innocent mean? So then we do a whole examination and contemplation and investigation of what innocence is because it's quiet. It's suspended Suspended knowing. It's not, again, it's not that knowing doesn't arise. Knowing does arise. You can't, you can't stop the neurons from firing. But you're suspending the conclusion in action of body, speech, and mind. And that allows spontaneity. It allows creativity. It allows us to move beyond the response the neurological response. Oh, okay, so I uh, have to move. This, this is the direction. It's so obvious. It becomes so obvious. And you also, at the same time, see, most people see their reluctance. like everything, tender-heartedness. That's one of the reasons we group together as a Sangha is because alone, if you're tender-hearted, if you're innocent, if you're quiet, you don't have a chance. You're dismissed. And there's nothing worse than being dismissed. In Sangha, there's some opportunity to be appreciated for those qualities. And so there's a part of you that goes, oh, well, I know I'm going in the right way because the people I really care about and whose values I hold true are encouraging this forward. And you can sit with that and you can allow that to really feed you. Because the sacred is innocent. It can only be found within the innocent. And to balance the influence of the past with that influence, with that innocence. So I know what that person lied to me before, and yet I'm not going to recoil 
from them, but um, that knowledge is there so that there is some discerning quality about what they're saying that wasn't there the first time I met them. And when I get in sense that I have to work hard to solve my problems, I realize this is the voice in my head. This is the compelling need of volitional intention, of willful action. And I sit back and say, wait a second, where is this coming from? Is this a voice in my head? This voice in my head's being in control once more? It gets very slippery. But it also gets very rich. And I wish you all that richness. Can we sit for a minute or two? So do you sit with the voice in your head? I mean, you're going to sit with your voice in your head regardless. But do you sit with it as a command central? Do you move? Does your body move in relationship to its needs? Or is there a wider discernment? Because awareness, the discerning quality of awareness will also say, you know, you're hurting yourself by sitting that way. And you'll move in relationship to that wider discernment of awareness. That's different than seeking comfort from the voice in the head. Okay, so if there are any questions or comments, I'd be happy to entertain them. Where's Moffat? I know she's got something. <laughs> Listen, dear, I appreciate your questions. I don't mean, I don't want, I, when I was a, a new, not new, but when I was a student, I was full of questions all the time. So I, you go ahead. Right. How to, how to trust the innocence really is your question. How to trust it because, you know, there there are vultures and thieves at our back, as the song goes. There's no way to answer that. You see, I mean, I would love to give you a clear map, 
two, keep those two separate and straight. But uh, there's much learning that occurs through making mistakes. And, uh, and yet the intentionality that is sustained through making mistakes is really what the goal, where the gold lies. Gold, G gold, G-O-L-D, not gold, gold. Where the heart of this thing lies. And then discernment begins to learn, you know, oh, you know, that doesn't work. I need to prepare a little more for that. And preparation, there's nothing, there's nothing um, contradictory about preparation or, as I mentioned, about any knowledge that we have. We need our knowledge. You're a dentist. Even if you don't have the knowledge, I mean, I could be... I mean, I could show up as a dentist and God knows what I would do to that mouth because I have no knowledge about it, okay? So that's part of, the, that's part of what comes forth within that, within that is the balance between that innocence. It's, it's when the, the knowledge gets identified with and it takes over the entire scope of the dentistry where you where you're not present to the problems that are unique to that particular mouth you're seeing. Because it's going to often require an original response rather than what you did, you know, 10 years ago when that same problem existed. And that's it. Now you can use the knowledge when it's appropriate, but you don't want it to blind you from the spontaneity that often must accompany each situation. So you live with both. And there's a beautiful balance between those. There's a balance between mind and heart. It's not, you don't cast one away and you, it's useless. There, in this mind uh, series, brain series, they showed one guy who had seizures when he was real young and so they cut something in his brain uh, and it ended the seizures but it also ended his memory. He had no memory whatsoever. So, he could see the same person, say hello, turn his back, turn back to the same person and not remember that he had just met him. And, and so, is that freedom? That sounds like hell to me. That's a, you see, it's not the loss, the severing of some kind of essential connection between the lobes of the brain. It's having those lobes actively involved within your life but having the space to be able to also allow not the overwhelming dominance of that knowledge, but freedom within it. So the use of it and the misuse of it at the same time. And that's practice. Just give yourself that. And, and don't be afraid of making mistakes because I guarantee you will. But it's the intentionality. You feel the intentionality? I'll say, okay, wow, that was amazing. I've got to do, do something different. I don't know exactly what. And then the intentionality gets reinforced from the mistake you just made. You don't get defeated by that. It reinforces it. Wow, okay, let's see a different, try a different way here. Try this, try this approach. Okay. Ultimately, it's living quietly with noise. Okay? It's not blanking this thing out so you don't have any thought, thoughts decrease considerably and relevant thoughts arise when the situation is needed. 
But it's not to make our mind blank. I hope no one has that idea of meditation. Right, right, right. Right, okay, so this is really crucial, is how do we train ourselves after we've made a mistake so that it's not abusive? Because you don't really learn from abuse. You're afraid of doing the same thing over because you'll abuse yourself again, right? And there's no learning in abuse, it's just reprimand. So you begin to see that the way, okay, so what is it that I just, how did I swing? He was talking about golf and sending a ball over a fence. How did I just swing? I need to understand how I swung this club that led it to slice it over the fence. Okay, so then you get somebody who can look at your, your swing objectively and be able to perhaps help you, or maybe you can figure it out on yourself. But if you go, God damn, I'm not going to do that anymore. I don't, you know, uh, then you haven't learned anything and you've left scar tissue from the, so it's not helpful. I mean, you, you don't do it because, you, you do it because it's not helpful. <laughs> you go, wow, that wasn't helpful. Abusing myself wasn't helpful. They didn't learn, I didn't learn, nothing changed. Except now I'm afraid of doing it. Okay, so that's not helpful. So what can be helpful? So you begin to understand that in every aspect of this journey, the understanding quality of what's going on is essential to moving forward. Not self-abuse. The path freezes at self-abuse. Holds you steady, fixed within that assumption of self-abuse. No movement. Only, okay, does awareness have any power? <clears throat> yeah. Right, that's one of those things, that's this brain series. I, I really meant to this brain thing. Series. Yeah, where uh, this brain series, uh, it showed that, you know, we're always, we're, our responses are always in the past because it's already been made sense of, which means it's after the fact, because all the data comes in and then it scrambles around in some kind of millisecond or something, and then it makes sense of the data, and then we respond to that which makes sense. And so we're already responding from the past of what, and that's moved on. So we're never actually living in the present, right? So now the question then, is awareness just passive? Because if it's just passive, it won't move a lump anything. It won't move anything, will it? It will just, we'll all just be sitting on the couch. Right? So that's obviously not the way it works. There's a quality of intelligence. Not my intelligence, but intelligence to awareness. 
and discernment at the same time. But it's not in conflict. It never, doesn't pit one thing against another. And so it moves in accordance to the laws from which it observes. And it observes unity. It observes non-separation. It observes through love. And so it moves in the direction of all of that in accordance with all of that. And it never objects, it never criticizes, it never does anything contrary when the mind takes over. It ju- that's when it becomes a passive awareness. But that passive awareness, when seen from awareness, is understanding. Because if I can see what I'm doing down here, making myself miserable, I can understand sufficiently so that I don't do that anymore. You see? So that power of discernment is the power of freedom. It is the channel. It is, the, it, is the, it is what freedom is. It's how freedom is accessed. Right? So there's a passive quality to awareness which sees what it's doing wrong, what the mind is doing wrong. And there's an active quality to awareness which ignites a sense of passion, of love, and then responds appropriately in that direction, given what it knows about life. Okay? So, so, so. Yes. So, work is image. Right. 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 Okay, so, right. The, what I was talking about, a work and uh, image and how it can be contrary to the intentionality of our spiritual journey. It's a hard one because most people try to find their spiritual journey within the awareness of their job. And I think that's almost always impossible because there's too much coming at us. Unless you're, you know, you know, I don't know. Unless I don't know of a job in which that is, that people have that ability mostly. But you can have an intentionality for your job, which is moving it in the direction of the way you want your life to be lived. So that doesn't mean that there aren't going to be conflicts within that. You may want to may be a strong environmentalist, but you have to drive on your job. Uh, and you go, oh, I, can't, I can't take a job that I have to drive. Well, <laughs> that's absurd. There's going to be limitations to every job we take and some compromises, right? But in general, does it, does it, is it in line with my intentions for life? Does it help people? Is it kind? Does it bring things, does it bring, is it bringing life together or is it separating more? You know, those are the questions that I think we should all ask in terms of what we do. And, you know, is it a place in which employment, you know, I'm offering employment because I'm an owner or something, you know, so that's, um, and then within that work, you want to find areas that, of discontent and see if you can work on how to recover a sense of sanity within that discontentment. So you, you, do it from, you do it from a more gross view than trying to be aware every moment you're at work. It just doesn't work. I've never met anyone who could do that. 
All right? So let's throw that one out. There are times when you can be present. If your job is like a therapist, you need to be present in your body as you're listening to that person. Those are jobs that are very much in accordance with mindfulness and an active expression. But if you're at a computer screen and you have a thousand decisions to make, it's not. So most jobs aren't like that. Okay, so how do I work this thing so that I can feel good about myself throughout the day? And to do that, you have to notice where the discords are, where there is conflict, where there is areas in which you're reacting. And then you have to invite some intentionality into those areas to see if you can't learn a smoother and more aligned way through them. Sharp. Right. Okay. Right. 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 No, no. No, so. Okay, so. It, it's. You, you don't. That's more. Pr- I feel a lot. Hear a lot of pressure there, you know. Okay, let me just. Okay, so. I messed up. All right. I don't know what happened, but you know, I wasn't there. I wasn't present. I reacted. I barked. I scolded. I did something. Okay. So now let me take myself out of that particular scene. Let me calm down a little bit. Let me replay that imagery in my mind. What just occurred. Let me just feel what was arising in me. You do this after the fact through your memory. Okay. And you see, and you just, oh, okay, I see. I, you know, there's this pain body of mine that he hooks every time he says something to me. Whatever it is. And you bring some discernment into that after the fact. And you're patient with the fact that that may go on a hundred times before there's any improvement. See, it takes extraordinary patience to do this. And yet you can replay it. You know, you don't get impatient with your, because that tension, again, is like, Hooking your golf shot. It's not, it doesn't help you. It doesn't help you to abuse how you screwed up that last interaction. It just makes you more anxious and tense when that next interaction occurs with the same person. You see? But if you go, okay, so this is my heart. My heart is that I don't want to create tension in this relationship. That's where my intention is. I don't want to do that. So... Okay, so that means I'm going to have to live through this guy's insults or judgments, which always hook me. Okay, so let me just... All right. Okay, so you see? You start welcoming in a different, a different programming, a different way of seeing. Okay, we've got to stop. Next week, discussions on this topic. I hope you find it worthy. And we have some announcements, I assume. Do we have announcements? Yes, we have announcements. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.